Many people think we're only about shoes at Doctors of Running, but that would be wrong, because we're also all about socks. We're thankful that our friends at Running Warehouse carry all of our favorite brands from Features to Belega and Swiftwick to Drymax. With fall coming, we're excited to get our long socks out for some crisp, cool days ahead. The Swiftwick Aspire 4 is a team-wide favorite. Andrea calls it one of the few compression socks she's tried that sits just right without feeling too tight. It's a sock our team has poured thousands of combined miles into blister-free. For runners looking for a good value, the Saucony Inferno Merino Wool Socks provide both warmth and super soft comfort that you'll want to keep on long after your run. For less than $25 a three-pack, it's our Content Wizard Box Best Kept Secret to Comfortable Winter Running. Find your next pair at runningwarehouse.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today, I'll be hosting. I'm Nathan Brown, and we have Dr. Matthew Klein here with us, and we are so excited to dive into a mailbag episode. We got so many questions from you all, uh, so many that we cannot even get close to filling this episode with all the questions that you have. We've packed it with the stuff that kind of came to the top of the list as we sifted through it all. But thank you all for submitting your questions. We're going to keep going back to the ones that have been submitted until we hopefully someday answer them all, um, either through here or we put out a weekly, uh, what we call a shakeout on Mondays, where we give quick thoughts on a topic of interest to one of us. And we can use your questions to spark how, what we talk about in those Monday shakeouts. So you can check those out on doctorsofrunning.com. Anyway, we have a really, I would call it a pretty spicy group of questions today. And I would say this is going to be more of a discussion and brainstorming through some of these things because there are too many nuances within these questions for us to give straight up answers. But you, you'll be able to join us in the thought processing journey of the type of questions we would be asking ourselves and what conclusions we might come to. So we're pretty excited about that. As always, we have our subjective question of the week. And this week is in the mailbag realm. Please, uh, what we want you to do this week is what questions do you want us to talk about? What questions do you have? So put them down below. They can be about running shoes. They can be about rehabilitation, running injuries. They could be about running and dad life, whatever it is, you can put those uh, below and we're happy to happy to talk about them. Speaking of running and dad life, Matt, how has sleeping been for you a couple weeks into having a new little in your home? Uh, not great. Uh, she's a little over three weeks old, uh, not sleeping a ton because she likes to wake up multiple times a night to feed. Uh, and I am on diaper duty to try to support my wife. Um, I am not capable of breastfeeding. Uh, I have not tried, but I'm pretty sure I'm not capable. Would not want to do that to my daughter. So yeah, not sleeping a ton. Definitely uh, up in the caffeine intake. Uh, for those who may have heard Bach and some others reference this, uh, yes, it's true that I put the scratch recovery coffee in coffee. Uh, I think I'm having to do <laughs> double doses of that right now. So uh if I fall asleep and fall, I'm on a Swiss ball right now. For those who don't know, that's what I always sit on. So if you see me bouncing or that stuff, if I fall off, I'm sorry. Um, but at least this should be an entertaining episode. These questions are super spicy, by the way. Um, They're this really should good. be a good episode. We'll have to see. A lot of like, should be. Uh, but it'll be fun. My brain's at like 25% capacity right now. It's perfect. That makes it more, even more fun. Those early those early weeks and months, they, uh, they can feel like they're dragging on. Um, I mean, we're out of that fog right now with having a four and a six-year-old, but it can be pretty draining yeah. mentally and just all your systems kind of just like yeah. come down a level. Yeah. So, but we're here with yeah. you, Matt. Thank you. We're excited to have yeah. you here. Okay. So we're going to start off with our first question, which is a very classic, let's compare some shoes kind of questions. Kuya is asking, please compare the Asics Magic Speed 3 against the Boston 12 and against 
the Hoka Mach X. So Matt, this is a question I'm going to mainly put in your camp just because I have not used the Magic Speed 3. So why don't you give us a little bit of comparison between those three models, all of which have some kind of plate in them, have some form of the kind of uh, supercritical foam of some kind infused within there. Tell us a little bit about your experience in these shoes. Yeah, that's a really great question. I, I think that the Boston 12 and the Mach X are directly comparable. The Magic Speed 3 is in a little bit different realm, and there's kind of a couple reasons for that. One, um, this is the only one that has a full-length carbon fiber plate. The Boston has rods, and the Mach, although it's still really stiff, has a PBAX plate in it, so it's not carbon. It's still just as stiff, but we'll get into that in a second. The Magic Speed 3 is the lightest of the three. I would say this one is the true racer lightweight trainer of the group and it's definitely the stiffest it's not something i would normally do a ton of lightweight miles on it's something like going hey i don't necessarily want a super foam but i want something stiff and to do workouts and things like that or if if a super shoe isn't working out for me this is a really great alternative that still has that really stiff ride nathan you're gonna say something yeah, that one's just coming in at 7.8 ounces yeah. or 220 grams yeah. for men's size 9, 6.6 ounces or 186 grams for women's size 8, and the stack on that is 36 millimeters in heel and 29 in the forefoot. So, yeah, you got that under 8 ounces. Yeah, comparable stack height-wise, weight's just, it's almost, it's like an ounce and a half lighter than the other two. So this is, of the three of them, if I was going to go race, this would be my racing flat, Whereas the yep. other two are kind of more of your lightweight trainers, plated trainers that are, have some super foams in them, be it the uh, Light Strike Pro or uh, Hoka's uh, Piba, Pbax foam here. So you're getting the combination of plates and half super foams in them, but they're a little bit heavier, heavier being relative in that like nine-ish ounce range where these are going to be a little more versatile into training. Uh, I especially like the Boston for training in. Uh, The mock is a little bit stiff for me, but broken really nicely. As shoes that can handle workouts, but also handle daily training for those who want to be able to do it. So I'd put them in a little bit different realm. Uppers are completely different. Mach X and um, the... Magic Speed 3 are somewhat similar. It's kind of got like slightly short, snug upper, whereas the Boston has a little bit more room for me. But I think that's the biggest difference, again, is kind of their purpose, where the Magic Speed 3 is definitely in that racing realm where these are kind of halfway in it, halfway out. These are probably going to work better for training purposes if people are interested in that, whereas the Magic Speed is going to be a little bit more racer type and certainly is the stiffest of the three of them. Yeah, and what's interesting is the weights between the uh, Mach X and the Zero or the Boston Twelve are exactly the same. Yeah. Nine point four ounces in men's, eight ounces in women's, and the same amount of grams. So two hundred and sixty-seven in men's and two hundred and twenty-seven in women's. So, yeah, very similar. And they both have that little bit of the infusion of their top end foam from a P-back, like have a, a bit of that P-backs foam in them, but then have a you know a carriage without it. Yeah. So it is really interesting and. Um, like I said, I haven't, I've gotten, I, I have ran in the, in the magic speed three, but not a ton. But I think what's interesting about that shoe is it's the lightest one, but it also is the only one without, it doesn't have turbo in it. It doesn't right. have flight phone turbo. It just has blast plus. And so it doesn't have your nylon or, or Piba based kind of foam in it, but it has that super lightweight feel to it. Whereas these other ones kind of have that trainer esque. I personally, I know I'm different than everyone else on the team so far, but my, my favorite runs in the Boston have been my long runs and not so much my workouts. Um, and 
part of that was probably the nature of my training cycle when I was testing the shoe was I wasn't doing as many hard workouts and building towards anything. Um, but I was getting a lot of, you know, 12, 13 mile runs in the Boston and I thought it rolled along really nicely. And I think the little bit more flexibility in that shoe, in my opinion, than the Mach X. Um, so I just, I felt like it could go a little bit slower, a little bit easier. Whereas the Mach X, if I went too slow, it felt a little bit too stiff to just kind of plot along. I don't know if you had a similar experience. Yeah, I, I did have the same thing where easy miles was kind of difficult in the Mach X until it broke in a little bit. But before like before before it broke in, yeah, it was just it's better for up tempo stuff, whereas Boston it can handle more of that easier and longer effort um stuff. And then I again of all of them, the magic speed is a little tough to do easy stuff in just because it is so stiff as well. So stiffness wise, the Mach X and the Magic Speed 3 might be fairly comparable despite having two different types of plates. Yeah, I I'd agree there. And I think it's it's kind of gonna come down to a little bit of personal preference on how much of a rocker you want, how much flexibility you want, and uh, and what you want the shoe for. I do think something else that's interesting in terms of fit, I think that they have different types of uppers, but they both are on the more snug side, especially when it comes to volume. I feel like the Boston 12 is a little bit you know, shallow when it comes to height within the toe box. I would say the same is true for the Mach X, and it, and it has a pretty classic Hoka, a little bit more narrow fit to it right now. And that's one thing I'd love cleaned up on both of those is is that is the fit and having a little bit more room. You can still get a really nice lock in, but I think you'll run into similar issues from a fit standpoint. But if you are looking for slightly more room, I I verge towards the Boston 12. I think it opened up a little bit more, though I personally am not a fan of the lacing system. I just found it kind of confusing. <laughs> it's got I, this. Yeah, I wouldn't even you. know how to describe it. It's almost like a cage on each side that holds them. And I don't know. I think you could simplify it and it can be just as effective. Agreed. Anything else on this comparison here? I'd say we pretty pretty much hit it. I would say that the to be honest with you, the the Boston Twelve Mach X and the Kinvara Pro are probably better comparisons than the Magic Speed because the Magic Speed Three is in a little bit different realm, personally. But yeah, did our best. I'd agree. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, and then of those, the Kinvara Pro is still the outlier yeah. in that group of three too just because it's it's it is a little bit higher yeah and it is so stiff that one's just like it it's i almost can't bend that or the um strung to the oh uh, definitely oh strung is called? a totally different yeah <laughs> what's that shoe called why am i blanking i i'm sleeping why can't i think of the name of that shoe that? oh my kevara pearls are right in front of my face yeah <laughs> what's the adidas shoe called why, why am I blanking? The Strung. The What's the Primex, first part of the it? The Primex. Strung Primex. Too. Yeah. Yeah, Primex. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. But that one, you, you can't bend that in your hands either. I don't know if you have luck with it. You might be stronger than me, but that no, thing's... There's two carbon plates in here. You can't bend that. There's no way. And there's, four, what, 43 and a half millimeters of stack height in the fort? There's no way, yeah. It's crazy. If you so. bend it more, you'll break it and be like, oh, I just broke a $300 shoe. Good job. Yeah. Cool. All right, we're going to move on to our next question. This is Gustav from Sweden. Uh, They have two questions, and we're going to kind of try to tackle them both. But the first one is a a, a unique one to what we usually talk about on the podcast. Um, It says, can you see with your eyes that a young child may have stability needs in shoes? 
My daughter, who is two and a half years old, leans heavily on her medial side when standing still barefoot. And I know that standing and walking are not the same thing. So this kind of is a multiple part question. And this is a one that huge caveat of like, this is not medical advice here. Um, but they're kind of wondering, can you tell visually if a kid has stability needs or not? Um, and then he's giving his anecdote of his daughter. So what are your what's your reaction to that question? My immediate reaction is going, this person needs to be evaluated by a pediatric physiotherapist. Um, just because there are, this is going to be outside of my expertise, despite having done some pediatric stuff when it comes to kids in shoes. Yes. So you're talking like this kid's probably, unless there's something else going on, this kid has probably been walking for at least a year, if not a year, probably a year and a half. So, you know, there is a possibility that this could go away and maybe you don't need to do anything, but visually, yes. If you do a gait analysis and you see it impacting things up the chain, but I'm, I would, you need to have someone who is trained in this to figure out what is there are, is it impacting other things and then to actually treat it. So like tape something or put a little, uh, like a mini orthotic in there. There's a lot of pediatric clinics, at least the ones that I uh, got to do when I was in my rotations where you, you have like small little orthotics. You can actually like put in there to see, Hey, does this change things? That's not something you're going to have over the counter at home. Um, and I would also, you know, ask the kid, Hey, is, is it impacting the rest of their body? Is it actually bothering them? Are they walking less? Are they looking like they're in pain? If not, I'd probably say, leave it alone. Cause kids are pretty adaptable and they'll a lot of times kind of work through that stuff. But if it looks like it's affecting things up higher, then I would really get her evaluated because this is going to need somebody who's actually trained in this stuff. Is that a fair answer? Yeah, my basically my my answer to this was going to be make sure that either your pediatrician or then also you have yeah. eyes on it from a from a pediatric PT. And so I know in the United States there are um, specialization exams for pediatric physical therapy. I don't know exactly how it works in Sweden, but um, I would I would find somebody from a movement specialist standpoint just to get a look at it. Um, and if if it again if it hits into that category of there seems to be concerns that she's not playing a lot or she's, you know, she's changed. She used to be playing a lot. And now she's avoiding play or we, she can't last as long or she's falling or you're just noticing other things. I would say that's when, you know, definitely go see somebody. But if it's just you're noticing it and there's no problems, check in with your, you know, uh, with your pediatrician at your checkup and then see if they have any recommendations. Um, but in general, we know that static and dynamic uh, assessments look very different, and it, and it may not tell you exactly what you need in your shoes. But again, this would be a, if you're concerned, go talk to somebody. Um, this podcast will be very insufficient in being able to guide you. Very true. <laughs> uh, your second question uh, from, from Gustav was that you're, he, you said, I'm starting to find that I have different stability needs on my right versus my left foot. Right now, I'm frequently lace-locking my right shoe, but not my left. Um, since I'm having trouble locking down my right heel properly, it feels like it's turning outwards with the medial heel climbing upwards and yep. resting on the edge of the insole and up on the sidewall or heel counter of the shoe. Anything I can do about this besides tightening my shoe harder or replacing them? I'm currently using the Asics GT 2011s with 40 miles on them, so the shoes are not old. 
So this goes back to when I worked in running stores and I was very fortunate to work at places like FitRight Northwest and Foot Traffic in Portland, where it wasn't about, hey, how much can we sell, but really helping people. So there are a lot, there are actually lacing techniques besides lace locking the shoe that you can use to actually pull the medial side of the upper a little bit more and provide a little bit more uh, supports, maybe not the right word, but I guess in this case it might be. Um, and you don't have to do the same thing on each shoe. People's feet are different side to side. It's unfortunate. Brooks used to do, like, for example, people's feet aren't the same size uh, side to side. Usually it's actually fairly rare to have feet that are truly the same size. So Brooks used to do something where they'd actually sell different size shoes to people. You just special order them, but they don't do that anymore. So unfortunately, this doesn't get a lot of common knowledge. But what you're experiencing isn't abnormal. It's it's normal to have a little bit more weight to load one side a little bit more, have some different motion on one side versus the other. It's just challenging because a lot of footwear isn't really made that way. And the Asics GT 2011 is the new one changes that. And I really love the 12, but the 11 is still a little more traditional where it's pretty much got a post. There's not a ton of crazy stuff there in terms of like, like adaptive stability is what I would call that. So if your G 2011s are still working and you like them, you can still like take, there's, there's some techniques out there you can use to pull the upper using lacing a little bit more toward the lateral side and just to give a little bit more structure um, on that medial side, especially in that medial heel. But um, if that's something you're really concerned about, some of the newer shoes that have what I would call more adaptive, like something like the Saucony Tempest or some of these things that new, use newer methods of stability that kind of like when, when you roll into it, if you need it, you'll be okay. But if you don't need it, you won't are actually might be some good options because the new adaptive stuff is great because if you need it, which on one foot you might and one foot you might not, it, it does really, really well. I think the GT2012 does a good job of this, but to prevent you from needing to go, oh my gosh, I have to go spend some more money, um, I would try a lacing technique and you should feel totally fine doing this on one side versus not on the other because please remember, again, your feet are different side to side and they are certainly different between people. And that's what makes footwear design so difficult. I think what's interesting too about the this question too is even the way it's worded. Yeah. So finding that I have different stability needs. Yeah. And I think that that's even a, do you have needs for stability or is it some other sort of experience? Sure. And so I, I think I, I have a lot of questions regarding, regarding this situation and just kind of what, what your actual experience is, Gustav, like when you're actually running and what it, it even more about what it feels like. And if you're running into any issues and then doing a gait analysis and looking at what may be, uh, actually happening or not. Um, cause sometimes what we feel and what's actually happening in motion are different. We yep. know that from, at least from foot strike, we know that people are very poor at understanding where, what part of their foot is actually landing first. Um, but I think it's, I think that's an interesting part of this question is kind of like what's, what might be really going on versus what you're feeling and what could be contributing and are they even problematic or not as Matt was alluding to. I think the second part is, you know, you're talking about your foot rolling into what we would consider a, at least a part of supination and not so much pronation. When we think about like posts and classic stability, quote unquote stability needs, often we talk about building up structure on the inside or the medial side of the shoe to change the how how much or how quickly or how long you stay in a pronation p moment or a pronation state. Um, and again, as we've said a million times, pronation is not the enemy. 
But I think for you, you have the other direction where you are, it sounds like you're describing a rolling outwards, which would be a part of supination or eversion. And so that changes kind of what type of shoe, like you don't, you know, a, a shoe with a classic post may or may not be what you need. Maybe just something with more cushioning that allows your foot to move into pronation more uh, could end up being your your direction that you would go potentially with trying your next shoes. So again, we don't know what's really going on, but you know, you could go two directions with what, what you end up trying for your next shoes. But again, I think normalization of the, the reality of differences side to side is going to be a reality for all of us. And it might not be problematic. Um, and just, again, still finding those shoes that feel comfortable on both feet, which if it's dramatically different can be a little bit more of a challenge. Any more thoughts on this one, Matt? No, yeah, I'm still, yeah, you mentioned a great point. I was a little confused when they said it meant outwards. Like, is that the foot turning outwards? Is it the heel coming out? So, yeah, I think it's going to depend on is this causing you issues like pain symptoms preventing you from running or is it just a unique part of your biomechanics? And then the other part is where is it being driven by, right? Is it actually coming from the foot and ankle? Is it coming up higher? Um, that makes it a little more difficult. But I think I'm still going along the lines of do you actually have stability needs or do you need a shoe unlike the GT uh, 2011 that actually is more kind of like stable, neutral, or more centered like guidance space that just kind of keeps you in the middle? We don't know. This is going to be something that hopefully we provide you information and you can go and explore and go, hey, what does work for me? Which is the whole point of what we do is helping people understand and figure out what works better for them. So, yeah, lots of lots of follow-up questions. Right. And and I think when when you have – considerations of, do I need a stability shoe? That's kind of the question that's being asked in some ways here. Do I need to vary what type of shoe I have for foot or how could I modify, you know, question, question your notion of what it means to need a stability shoe and what stability shoes after actually do. Yeah. All right. Our next question is from Eric and he's asking, do you have shoe recommendations for transitioning into a carbon plated shoe? This is a good question, and I, I, I very much appreciate being asked because most people will just jump in. And it, you're not saying super shoes specifically. You're saying carbon-plated shoes. So I want to clarify which one might be being referenced. But I think it's a good idea because a lot of the plated shoes, they're pretty stiff. Now, to be fair, a lot of the normal shoes without plates are actually getting fairly stiff as well, right? Like some of the more traditional trainers, Cumulus, stuff like that, Nimbus are Nimbus. getting really getting stiff and they don't have plates in them. So in some ways, a lot of this, like if you're wearing normal daily training shoes right now, some of the levels of stiffness and rockers, you might not need that much time to transition. But if you're talking about some of these super foams where you've got all the combination of all the factors of massive stack height, which a lot like the Nimbus was a great example because it's above that 40, um, massive stack height, super soft, super foam, and a plate at the same time, there are some options that maybe are plated that might be good that you can transition into. And we actually just talked about a couple of them. Um, but if, if you're just talking about a carbon plate, I think one of the best ways to do that would be looking for a shoe that maybe is plated, but a little bit more flexible, something like a Saucony Endorphin Speed, which uses a nylon plate. It's got some of the super foam components. It's just not nearly as stiff as something like the Canvara Pro, which is more the true super shoe, whereas the other one is kind of like it's getting in that direction, although it's still a, endorphin pro. Yeah, the endorphin pro. Thank you. Um, yeah. I forget how many pros there are. 
<laughs> Adios <laughs> no, Pro, kidding. Endorphin Pro. There's a couple other ones. Kinvara Pro. Kinvara Pro. Um, yeah. So, yeah, looking at something that maybe has a non-carbon plate but a um, a different kind, like a nylon plate, like the Saucony Endorphin Speed might be a good option. I was going to suggest something like the Mach X, but that shoe is so stiff even though it doesn't have a carbon plate, even though it's a PBAX plate. I'd be like, hey, that's, you know, that that could be an option, but it's still going to be really stiff. Because the big thing is, it's not so much the carbon plate, it's how stiff these shoes are. So, well, the Endorphin Speed would be a good one. Nathan, let me know. Topo Spectre. Topo Spectre might be really good, because again, it doesn't have a plate, but it's still, right? It's pretty stiff. It does not have a plate. Yeah, yep. the Boston, tell me what you think if I'm wrong about this. The Boston 12 might be a good option, because it's got rods. It's still fairly stiff, but there is just a teeny bit of flexibility left to it. So it mm-hmm. might be something to consider to transition into more stiff thing. What do you think about that? Is that a decent? Yeah, I, I think Boston 12 would work in that kind of transition yeah. phase. I, I think I think you mentioned it perfectly where it's not so much about the carbon plate, but it's about how different is it from what you're currently coming from. So right. if your starting spot is running in, say, you held it up, the Nimbus 25, yeah. you have some experience running in a highly stacked, highly cushioned, and rockered shoe. The only difference then would be foam type and the amount of like platform underneath, so it might become more narrow. And so if you have the Nimbus as your starting point, your consideration for transition is um, mostly around how can I handle a little bit more of a resilient and compliant foam than you're going to get just with kind of like the soft mushy with a wide platform. So that's your transition point. Whereas if you're running in like a classic like Saucony ride or a Mizuna wave rider, your consideration is how do I get myself used to a stiff rocker? And so your transition shoe might be different based on your starting point. Um, that's kind of some of my thoughts on this on this question. My other thing is, again, you mentioned this perfectly. If you're running in something like a Nimbus, which is already getting a little stiff, you can get a carbon-plated shoe, maybe one that's not as aggressive, something like – we talked about the Magic Speed 3 earlier. It's still pretty stiff. It doesn't have the same super foam stuff, so there's not as many variables to get used to. And then it just comes about easing your way into a shoe like this, right? Your body can adapt. It just give it time while you train in other things and just kind of slowly – dose this shoe into your running routine um a great way of like hey let me you know i'm gonna do an easy run and then maybe do some strides put on the the carbon plated shoe at the very end and do some strides just get used to it and slowly increase then maybe do a short run in it then maybe then do a full workout in it just kind of ease your way in your body can adapt you just got to give it time yep the other shoe I'll throw out there is the SC Trainer V2. Oh, um, version one is version one is more like full fledged stiff and just like big, but the yeah. version two has a lot more flexibility to it um, and kind of is is that transitionary. It's got the super foamy feel, but it's not full full bore. Yeah. So that'd be another one that I would put on the docket as a potential um, to transition. And I, you know, again. That's a little against the question because it's asking specifically about transitioning to carbon fiber plates. But if we're talking transition to the super shoe, that would be a more of a middle ground shoe that you could also consider. And I personally have really liked that shoe. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it also comes down to like realizing it's not like we've talked about before. It's not exactly the plate and the material. It's the stiffness, right? So you're talking about transitioning to stiffer shoes 
it's because you can have carbon fiber plated shoes that still have some flexibility to them, right? You can have yes. a shoe like the Mach X, which doesn't have a carbon plate, it has a PBAX plate, but it is very stiff, right? So think about, you know, transitioning into what what the carbon plate is doing or what the plate is doing rather than, oh, what exactly is the material? Because it's going to vary from company to company. Yep. There's no standard. Everything Everything's very unique, which is what, what makes it so nuanced and difficult to make hard and fast rules because you can't just say a carbon plated shoe because that <laughs> that could be super flexible and it could be not flexible at all right. and it really depends but this brings us into a good next question um and i saw you grab the vapor fly and so i'm going to pitch this question as you maybe think about what you're going to say but the next question is from nsov8 and they're asking compare the saucony endorphin elite versus the nike Vaporfly. So let's talk about that. What's the differences that you've that you've noticed? Yeah, so I would I would first of all say I will compare these, but I think the Endorphin Pro 3 is a little better comparison to the um Vaporfly whereas the Endorphin Elite might be a little bit better compared to something like the Alpha Fly, but I'm still going to compare them cuz I think they're both great shoes. They're still on the top of my super shoe list. The Did they both make your top 5 for the first half of this year? I think they did. I, uh, I don't know. If I know the elite. I know the did. elite was. I can't remember if I put yeah. the vaporfly on there. Just because it's a David great shoe, David definitely. It's not quite as yeah. stable as I need. Whereas the endorphin elite gets a. It's not a stable shoe by any. It's not a stability shoe, but it has some mechanisms that work really, really well for me. Um, but yeah, let's. So get, I'm gonna. Yeah, go for it. I'm gonna lay out some of the specs I haven't okay. pulled up here. So for the endorphin elite, you're looking at 7.2 ounces or 204 grams in men's size nine, 6.5 ounces, 185 grams in women's size eight. Compare that to the Vaporfly, which is down at six and a half ounces or 184 grams for the men's size nine, 5.6 or 159. So definitely lighter. You know, you're about you know a little over a half an ounce lighter in the Vaporfly. Um, stack heights are pretty similar. 39 and a half in the uh, Endorphin Elite, um, 38 in the Vaporfly. They both, you know, have a static eight millimeter drop. So that's kind of what we're coming in from a, from a stats perspective. Um, and you get a little bit cheaper for the Vaporfly. It gets 25 bucks cheaper yep. for the Vaporfly 3. I, I would say, so let's do Ride first. Ride is pretty different between the two of them. The um, Endorphin, the, what is it? Uh, HG foam. Endorphin Elite. Yeah, the yeah. Endorphin Elite. The HG foam is a little bit firmer. It's an incredibly bouncy foam. And it was the first time I remember putting it on and doing a workout. Nathan, don't judge me. Um, when I was coming off having a fractured fourth toe and was coming back faster than I should have and didn't know how. And then I ran incredibly fast in this. And I'm like, this is definitely the shoe. This shoe is nuts, um, which is kind of classic for super shoes. It's a firmer foam. Um, which works a little bit better for me because there's some other stuff that I'll talk about that stabilizes me a little bit better. Whereas for those that have run in ZoomX, it's much softer, much more resi- much more compliant. I wouldn't say necessarily resilient because they both have a lot of bounce, but definitely a lot more cush over on the Vaporfly, especially in the heel. Um, both fast shoes, I would say the lighter weight makes the Vaporfly. Vaporfly is very versatile. You're going to see people run a mile road race to doing a marathon in this very easily. Whereas I think for a lot of people, I like the endorphin leaf for a lot of stuff, but I would say this works better for longer distance stuff. So half marathon, marathon, getting into a real rhythm is where the endorphin elite is going to work a little better. Although I actually chose this for a 5k recently over the, uh, Vaporfly, but that's because in my mind, the endorphin elite, although these aren't stability shoes is more stable. 
there's a wider base underfoot. The midfoot isn't as narrow as the Vaporfly. It's a little more filled in for me on the medial side. The sole is just a little bit wider on the Endorphin Elite. And there's sidewalls that seem to work really well for me, whereas not so much in the Vaporfly. If you don't need that stuff, it's not going to get in the way. I know they actually did some very interesting things for forefoot stability, actually by trying to fill it in. But if you need anything in the midfoot heel, you might struggle a little bit. But they're both fast super shoes. I think it's just where they kind of lend themselves a little different, whereas the Vaporfly can handle a little bit more of everything. The Endorphin Elite handles those longer distances really, really well, especially if you need just a, a more inherently stable platform without it being any like st- stability type. Um, and the foams are just different where the HG is a little, is firmer than the Zoom X. Last thing upper, there's just, there is a little bit more, I never thought I would say this. There's a little <laughs> bit more volume in the Vaporfly compared to the Endorphin Elite. Endorphin Elite, the forefoot's just a teeny bit wider, but the volume's pretty low, whereas the Vaporfly actually has some volume to it. And I was really impressed when I put it on. I'm like, wow, the forefoot's kind of wide and I'm not getting my foot crushed. So there's a little bit more volume again on the Vaporfly. Um, oh, last part. If you're crazy enough, you could take the Vaporfly on some uh, softer surfaces. They did do that intentionally based on feedback and so many runners, so many especially high school cross-country athletes were using Vaporflies on trails. They now have that waffle design where, and I have done this, I wouldn't suggest it, but if you're going to do this, of the two of them, I would put this one. Again, the traction is going to be a little bit better um, over here. And I, I do feel like, although I haven't got enough miles to really test this, I think durability, the outsole is going to be just a little bit better on Vaporfly compared to the Endorphin Elite. Um, I have been finding the Endorphin Elite, but I've seen, which is very surprising, but I've seen yep. David and a couple other people chew through that outsole on the Endorphin Elite a little bit quicker than on the Vaporfly. Yeah. I would say the other difference that I noticed when running in these two shoes, I, or even before I say that, I think these are the perfect example of shoes that you should try them both on and see which one you vibe with because Definitely. the one of the big differences between the two is the rocker shape and the initiation point or the ac, uh, kind oh, of that yeah. apex of the yeah. curve. So the Vaporfly has more of a uh, an earlier slightly earlier stage rocker. It's still aggressive, you know, you're still getting a lot of rocker, but it starts a little bit earlier, more towards the he- it's not at the heel, but it's more towards yeah. the heel than compared to the Endorphin Elite, which starts very late. So it's a later and it has a sharper curve to it and so you really have to get onto that rocker to be able to utilize it and so depending on your mechanics you might find that one feels great one feels clunky for me vaporfly feels great the endorphin elite feels super clunky for me unless i'm running really fast and i can't sustain really fast for a long time so unlike you matt where you've verged that shoe for longer distances I can't really choose that for a longer Ah. distance because I can't push the pace because I can't get on top of that rocker with the way that my mechanics work. I have the same thing that happens for me with the um, Metaspeed Sky, and it also happens for me with the Rocket X2. So just they have a little bit more of that like sharper edged rocker versus a little bit earlier. And for some reason, I just don't get up on it. And even when I run on a treadmill, I'm super loud and clunky, and it feels heavy. Like it doesn't feel heavy weight wise, but it feels like I'm not rhythmically moving through it feels like i get a I put on a little break and then i can go so i would say that sh- a shoe like that is one to worth trying on and running and, s- and make sure you feel good i'd be curious to hear what like dustin jobert would say and say well even if it feels clunky but you have better metrics on your running economy which one should you choose and um 
I, I think that'd be a curious case study to like put on a couple different ones, one that feels subjectively like smooth and fast versus one for me that feels more clunky and like off and see if my running economy matches that. But I just don't know. But wouldn't that be a fun study? That'd be a fun study. It's so interesting you say that because I think I have the exact opposite of you where I like having to climb over that because it facilitates me pushing harder. But yeah, that's a, that is the best thing is you are going to have to definitely try these on. There's no perfect answer because there's some, the, there's some not necessarily minutia, but definitely points of differences between the two of them that you're going to have to try to figure out, does this work for you? Yeah. The great shoes. Yeah. I think, oh, the last thing I wanted to add about power run HG, we got to sit down with Saucony and talk about that film. And I think one of the interesting points that their, um, material science kind of guru, Andrea, she was, she was telling us that that shoe, um, I think of it kind of like silly putty, whereas if you pull silly putty slow, it can deform a lot. But if you pull it really fast, it just it, it has a different viscoelastic response, we call it, to to like material loading. So if you load each HG fast, it's going to respond quickly to that. If you load it slower, it might have a little bit more deformation. So that's part of why we, we all experience softness of shoes differently. Depending on how quickly you're loading a foam, it determines how quickly that responsive nature of it will react to you. And when it comes to Power Run HG, it's got a very high responsiveness, um, which means that it's going to feel a little bit firmer because it starts to kick back at you right away. Um, so I found that as a really interesting part of our conversation with them. Okay, we are transitioning into the next question, and this is another good one um, that we won't have a perfect answer for, but we're going to try. Roy is asking, can you suggest one shoe... Sorry, spoiler alert. No, we can't suggest one. We're going to give you like 10. Um, but can you suggest one shoe that would work well for middle school cross country? Here's the criteria. The parents want to buy one shoe for both training and race day. Mileage is about 25 miles per week. The training is on road, dirt trails, and the track. The race is one to two miles. The race course is a mixture of grass, dirt, and pavement. No spikes allowed. This is awesome that they laid out all of this kind of like criteria. This was like one of the best worded questions we've had, in my opinion, gave us all the caveats for us. Um, Oh, yeah. And then they finish it. The different terrains and the cost to parents makes it difficult to find one shoe that can do it all. Any suggestions? So, again, just to run through the criteria again, they want one shoe for training and racing about 25 miles a week. Training is on multiple types of surfaces and the races are one to two miles. This is middle schoolers Um, and the races can't have spikes and it's a mixture of dirt, grass and pavement. So we thought a lot about this question. And obviously, one piece that comes into it is how big are your middle schoolers feet? Some middle schoolers are just going to have adult-sized feet, which opens up the gamut of all sh- all shoes. Um, but before we go to that part of the conversation, we did want we did look up a couple. We wanted to find what models are offered in kid sizes for those who might have a middle school runner who doesn't have adult-sized feet. Um, and so we found two shoes. One was the Audi Zero SL is offered in a kid's size, and as is the Kinvara. So there's a Kinvara Kids. Um, in my opinion, the one question about the Kinvara is not the ability to perform well it's the durability side because it is a lot of exposed eva Um, but we've had pretty decent success with that one so far but that would be one consideration um, for that shoe anything you want to add to the kid size shoes that we found because we're going to talk further about those shoes uh, in our other part of the answer but is there anything you want to add specifically to that matt yeah so we definitely this is a great question. This challenged both of us. We were sitting here before we 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 did this live. And we're like, uh, we gotta look this up. 
So I would say the Kinvara kids, I'm less, you know, I, this is testimonial. I've actually had pretty good success using the Kinvara on trail, despite the exposed outsole. Um, but that might be me, especially if kids are running, you know, 25 miles a week and one to two miles, I think they should be okay. Um, the, the thing that I, that we were looking at is really trying to keep kids away from any kind of super shoe. There are a few shoes that are made, um, like the Vaporfly is made in kids sizes, but I would really, unless you're running at a really high elite level, I would really discourage the use of any kind of plated super shoes, um, for younger kids, because it's not that we know for sure that they might mess with things. But we just don't know. And I think that's the bigger thing. If we don't – knowing basics of the development of kids, the development of little extremity, growing bodies, things like that, altered proprioception already as they're growing and their bodies are changing, really hesitate to suggest any kind of super shoe. So getting – what we're looking for is those classic lightweight trainers that can handle a little bit of anything. And that's where I think the Zero SL and the Kinvara – are really, really, really good at doing that. And especially if you're, they're also a little cheaper, right? So it's not going to be a $200 shoe that you got to, you know, give your kid that they, uh, kids will wreck shoes, like more, even more than I will. Um, so having something that's a little bit more durable, I think will definitely help while still having that performance edge. Going into the the next parts, I think realizing that there are going to be, and we, I had to look this up because Nathan, your kid, yeah, no, we don't have kids in middle school yet. Um, but I think Nathan's probably worked with a couple. I have not worked with any middle I work schoolers. With a no, yeah. I work with a, a large number of middle schoolers, yeah. a lot of high schoolers. Um, yeah. But I, yeah. I've gotten yep. a bunch of high schoolers, but not middle schoolers. So that's, I've gotten super young kids and older kids, but never in that middle range. So the, the thing that, and this is, Nathan, do I let you take this? Because it was your, your expertise. So I was like, sure. what's the average size? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to talk on it a yeah. little bit. I think, I think what, what our goal in answering this question is to find the most accessible shoe that can handle the demands of the running for the season, knowing that cost is a factor um, and knowing that versatility of pace and versatility of terrain is going to be important. So those were kind of our, our metrics for this. And as Matt mentioned, there's kind of no need to, to dive into this super shoe realm at, you know, in the middle school realm, unless you're, your kid or one of the kids on your team really wants to dive into that stuff and their family's in a space where they want to do that. But I just don't think it's needed. So what we wanted to find again, were these shoes that were on the affordable side of the spectrum had a little bit um, of that versatility, some grip for the, you know, dirt surfaces, but also is going to run really well on, uh, on the road. So a couple shoes that we came up with um, were, there's kind of the two, two parts of this one are full priced, deals and one is deals from the year before. I think that's a great space to go for your middle school runner is to look at last year's models. And I know on our website, we always have a shoes under a hundred dollars and there's a lot of really good shoes out there right now for under a hundred dollars. And some of them are on this list and even some, I don't know, some other ones that aren't on this list are just awesome shoes that are having wicked sales. Um, so I think it's worth, worth always checking out for sales from the year before, but a couple shoes that made our list are the Brooks Launch or the Brooks Revel. Those are usually $100 shoes. They have a very classic EVA, but they're a little bit lighter weight. So you can you know, push a little bit of your own effort into the shoe and it's going to allow you to run quick. It's not going to be super heavy underfoot. It's got a good amount of rubber. So the rubber is going to last you all year for in something like that. Um, and then in the same realm, um, a shoe from... Um, 
Asics is the Asics Cumulus, and that shoe is a little bit more expensive. You kind of get up into that one, I forget if it's 130, 135. Um, but again, it's their slightly lighter weight kind of daily trainer shoe. Um, it's not lightweight. I know it's gotten a little bit heavy, like kind of, it's got a little bit more weight to it, but it is going to allow you to turn over a little bit and just kind of that durability side of it where you won't run through it too quickly. Um, cause the season usually runs from like August, September, October. Um, so you got three months. If you're running 25 miles a week, that's about 300 miles or 325 miles to 400 miles. Um, and if your kid's doing summer running, you might want to consider then, you know, and I hope they are doing some level of summer running eight weeks of like some base mileage in the summer shows to decrease injury in the fall. Um, but if there are going to be doing summer running, I would say you're probably going to need two shoes between the summer running through the fall. And I know that's an, that's another part of the cost perspective, but the first ones I came to remind are kind of these classic daily trainers that sit a little bit more on the light end. Other ones on our list are the, you know, the adult size Kinvara. If you feel comfortable with the exposed outsole, it is ribbed from a grip perspective now, so that does help a little bit. The Puma Liberate is a lighter weight shoe. It has a little bit less cushioning than some of these other ones, but it can still kind of handle some of the training that you're talking about here. Um, a couple other shoes that we talked about, the, there's concerns with every, or there's considerations. Concerns is too strong a word. There's considerations for everyone. But um, if you want something that's a little bit more new age foam, but doesn't have a plate, still pretty classically runs, has a good amount of flexibility, would be the New Balance Rebel. Um, I would say the only thing about that shoe and another one that I'll, I'll mention next is just the nature of the outsole is a little bit more flat, doesn't have as much ribbing, so it's not going to grip as much, but it shouldn't be a problem unless you have like a muddy day or like really wet grass or something like that. That's where that I think would become a problem, but you can get a little bit more of that bounce fun feel and it, it does run fast. The New Balance Rebel can can push the pace um, and part of that's because the foam feels like it's given some back, but it's also just really lightweight. The other one with the outsole issue is the Asics Evo Ride or the Evo Ride Speed. Again, that has more of a flat, uh, rib, flat rubber on the outsole, but they are lightweight. They got a little bit of a rocker. They can definitely handle training miles and they can push the pace for a one to two mile race. So that's another one that I think is worth considering if you're not super, if you're not concerned about the grip side of things. Um, there's a couple other ones, but I think that's honestly the ones that stuck out to me the most as good options that, especially if you get them the year, a year older, you know, are going to give you the value cost wise that are going to get you through the season and will allow you to perform and have fun. I, I would say you could always get like a Brooks ghost or a Mizuno wave rider. They just will be a bit heavier and they won't be able to, you know, on the race day side of things, if they might, they might be a part of, you know, slowing you down a little bit, but it also depends on like who's the kid and what's their goals and how competitive are you trying to be? Um, cause what really matters in middle school is not about, you know, actually competing and winning. Um, but it's about falling in love with the sport and being healthy and making friends and learning, you know, character and all this stuff. I don't know. That's just my take on it. So find the shoe that will get you through the season for the training side of things. And, take what it gives you for the races is where I'm kind of at. Anything you want to add? No, I think that's great. And to be honest with you, even in college, uh, my college coach would not yet let us use spikes or racing flats at all the first race. They make us run in trainers. So sometimes from like an easing in perspective, it's a good idea. And you know, there you have so many great options that Nathan just mentioned that, yeah, that are also pretty affordable too. Yeah. 
Honestly, I think my my top choice, if there were no nothing else, I would pick a Brooks launch. Hundred dollar yeah. shoe. It's got decent grip. It's got enough foam underneath. It's simple. That that'd be my that'd be my pick. And then if you need even more of a deal, you just find it on sale from the year before. <laughs> so all right. Ready for the next question, Matt? Ready when you are. Okay, here we go. So this is from Daniel. I say, thanks for all you do. I love listening to your podcast. I was reading through an old 5K plan on Runner's World from 2011 and it includes this passage. So this, is what the, this is what the article from 2011 said in Runner's World. It says, icing is the silver bullet that makes our sport possible. We need, ice, we need to ice each and every sore spot that could potentially progress to an injury. And we need to begin our icing within 15 minutes after completing our run. This is truly a case of a stitch in time saving nine. And then they continue their question. They say, but I feel like I've heard advice to the contrary recently that icing and or Advil are often just masking symptoms that the body needs for its own recovery. Am I wrong? What's the correct conventional wisdom on icing post run? So I think they're getting really close and I don't want to sound like I'm poo-pooing on icing, but our understanding of this has greatly evolved. I don't, so the whole point of icing, one of the things was like, oh, it decreases inflammation, all this kind of stuff, you know, the rice method, rest, ice, compression, elevation. The, the individual that came up with rice uh, actually came back and said, yeah, that's not how this works. And I take that back. It's, it's appropriate active recovery and utilizing the right tools to keep people moving and using rest if necessary. And it depends on the tissue. But icing after every single thing is really not necessary. Ice really only is effective if you actually have an inflammatory response, like a true amount of swelling. And even then, the ice, the temperature doesn't really reach that far past the skin. I think in terms of a priority list of things to do after a run, there are things that are a lot more important. Uh, we have seen that things like anti-inflammatories, Advil's for sure, um, in the wrong person can definitely delay recovery because in inflammation is how you recover. It's that's how your body heals, right? You do damage to a tissue, like you go exercise. There's muscle damage. Your it gets inflamed. That's the body's response for going. Hey, this need we need to repair this, and then everything. You know, that's when you start healing, and you can't really accelerate that. You need time. You need to train appropriately. The only time that like ice baths and things like that have been shown to be effective is during multi-day events where you're not really focused on longevity and recovery long-term. You're just focusing on reducing symptoms so you can get to the next day because you're not going to recover fast enough. This is exactly the argument I used in college because my coach wanted us to ice bath and I hated ice baths because they made me feel worse and they thought they were a waste of time when I could be doing more active recovery and things like that. So I wrote a paper for him and he said, please don't bother me. You don't have to do this. Just stop bothering me. Um, that's my story on that. So I would say yes, with a caveat of if you actually have acutely damaged tissue and it is you cannot move or it's is the inflammation or the pain is preventing you from getting the active recovery or preventing you from just doing basic things, then yes, an anti-inflammatory or something like that might be beneficial. But for normal day-to-day -day stuff, no, that there are greater priorities. Make sure you get good nutrition after you run, maybe working on a little bit of mobility. And I don't mean a foam roll. I mean, just like some drills or active recovery stuff, making sure you sleep enough. That is going to be a million times more important than icing. 
because things are going to be sore. And if the key is, is this the kind of sore that's like, this might be an injury, or is it just like, hey, this got worked. So going and icing every single thing, I honestly think is a waste of time unless it makes you feel better mentally, which there's a whole different conversation that happens there. But I think there's better uses of your time than icing, and it for sure will not prevent injuries. This uh, the one of the things that's in my head right now is one of my I don't know if it's pet peeves or just things that I've been very conscious of off uh, recently in the world of content creation and how the internet you can so quickly get information is that we often don't communicate who we're speaking to and what the like situation or context is that we're applying an idea. So in the case of icing, you might hear the idea like you were just talking about that it's masking symptoms or as Matt said, what we, what we know is yeah, taking anti-inflammatories or icing right after an acute injury um, can delay the healing process because it's impeding the natural inflammatory response. But that's in it. That's all in a certain context. And if that's not communicated, it can get blown up somewhere else. And that's where probably some of this stuff came from this runner's world article. I would just, I would, Posit to give the hot take that that's a bad take from 2011, that that would not be applied anymore, that icing is not the silver bullet. Icing does not fix anything. Icing can be a symptom manager. And that's pretty much, pretty much it. And as Matt said, it's hard to get deep with icing. Ice baths and stuff is a different type of conversation about, you know, recovery. But from, a, from icing specific regions for pain is not effective <laughs> after running, no. period. Um, when it comes to the, like, negative sides of icing, I think we also don't want to overblow that and and say, just because you have a little bit sore spot and you want to ice it doesn't mean that it's not going to recover. That's not the case either. What icing does is it causes vasoconstriction, meaning it takes blood vessels from a certain diameter and brings the diameter smaller, which means that less blood gets to that area. When there's less blood, that can cause that kind of numbing sensation and stuff that you feel too. It also decreases the inflammatory markers that can get there for recovery. So Long story short, if you are having an acute ankle sprain or you just strained your hamstring like really bad on a sprint, you probably want to avoid icing um, and you want to avoid anti-inflammatories for that early phase of inflammation. And depending on the type of injury, that can be up to three weeks. Um, It can be as short as a couple days, but it can be up to a couple weeks. And so icing can be deleterious in those scenarios. But icing on, on, you know, something, oh, I just feel a little sore and I didn't really injure anything. Maybe it's fine to go do it, right? There's a it's not like it's this like it's not a silver bullet for fixing. It's also not going to hinder recovery to the to a huge amount. So, um, yeah, I think going back to your question, um, I would say you were asking if it just masks symptoms. I would say it's a little more than that. It has to do with impeding the inflammatory process. Um, but the conventional wisdom right now is that icing is not something that's going to lead to healing or improvement in your symptoms. Uh, it might improve your symptoms from a pain or like the perception standpoint, but it's not going to heal any tissues. Um, and if you don't need it, you shouldn't use it. That's my take on, that's my take on icing. There are better silver bullets out there, like appropriate sleep, strength training, <laughs> things like that. Nutrition yeah. for sure are going to do a lot better. And I think are a little bit more worth your time, but if you enjoy it, you know, don't overdo it. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the question too, because I think it, 
I think that's a, a great way to muse on on stuff that you read and not just accepting every single thing that you even hear from us. You know, yep, we're guilty please. of not not contextualizing information well enough, and we don't want people to apply a specific training plan to something else or a specific a specific. Uh, and that's why it's not advice; it's just education and thoughts. Exactly. <laughs> but um, you know, somebody's recommendation for wanting to lose weight as a runner to perform better has to be extremely contextualized because that's not true for like. 95 to 98% of people. I made that number up, but like that, like that sort of advice can be totally taken out of the place and cause a lot of problems for people who are trying to be strong and healthy runners and who are under fueling. So again, it really matters, you know, who's the audience. And if they are drawing from a study, who's the audience that study too? like, who did they, who did they actually look at? Ooh. Okay. Well, we only have time for, we have time for two more questions. Okay. So we're not even get through all the ones we had on the list, but this is from Suzanne and she's asking, hi, I love your podcast. I'm reaching out with two quick questions. First, do you have a recommendation for the replacement of the Nike peg turbo two? And here's kind of the continuation of that question. Next, after that, after the peg turbo two was discontinued, switched to the Saucony speed and pro lineups. Now I get metatarsal pain whenever I wear these shoes and wonder if it has something to do with the placement of the rocker or if it's something else that I should know about in avoiding when selecting my shoes in the future. Thanks. I'm at a loss on what to put on my feet. The turbo two had nice ground feel, but now I'm not so sure if I need more cushioning for that metatarsal pain or if my feet are just weak now from wearing those shoes. I appreciate it. So I, I want to jump in as someone who did really enjoy the Peg Turbo line. And I not to I'm, I apologize. Actually, I'm not sorry, Nike. The Peg Turbo nature is not a Peg Turbo. It's a casual shoe that some people have been able to run in. So that is not the same thing. Just FYI. Uh, I am sorry, Nike. I'm not trying to be mean. Just trying to we try to we just say it as it is. Right. Um, to Can adri- you give a little breakdown of what the. For people not familiar with the Peg Turbo 2, can you yeah. explain what that shoe was and kind of what it was like? So the Peg Turbo 2 was this amazing shoe that had an entirely Zoomex uh, midsole and fairly durable outsole. And it had kind of – I don't know why it was called – I guess it kind of looked similar to the Pegasus, that daily trainer, but it was so much lighter. It was like – I think – I'm going to say this wrong. It was like low 8-ounce – no, it was like high 7-ounce – range low eight ounce range had plenty of cushioning underfoot was super bouncy you could run workouts in it you could do daily training it was like it's truly that like do it all shoe plus having a zoom x midsole not having a plate um really made it able to do a lot of things it was a beloved shoe the parts of the shoe would come apart that's a different story but it was really beloved and i never really understood why nike discontinued it because it's it was kind of like that brooks launch where everybody loved it and when you took it away people got really upset um when it came back the peg nature is not the same thing. It's it's recycled Zoom X. It's a totally different upper. So not the same. So I, I understand your frustration. I, I get it. Um, to answer, to kind of start addressing the second part, and I, I know I didn't answer the first, but I got to get to the second part first. We don't have evidence yet that wearing these plated super shoes necessarily makes your feet weak. It's just that they're so different and they load different parts of your bodies and you start working a different way. If, it, if that's what you do all the time, that's what you get used to. And then when you switch back, it's just asking you to do something so different that oftentimes it can be difficult. So we don't have the evidence yet saying, yes, your intrinsic foot muscles are atrophying. It's more like we do. Do we? We do have evidence on the other side where people who wear minimalist footwear 
had a yeah. hypertrophy of their yes. intrinsic footwear. So we have the evidence that direction, but we don't have the con- like the yeah. contrary yes. um, because they were comparing to traditional running shoes and then minimalist, not to these like super shoes. So yeah. we don't really know exactly if right. it means, oh, you're going to atrophy or not. We right. have not had that evidence. Yeah, I Sorry, think it's, keep going. yeah, you don't, there's no magic shoes. They don't give you energy. So I would bet money if you did a study that if you looked at the whole body that you would see hypertrophy of the like, quads and glutes in response to having to stabilize more and having work shifted up there. But that's a different story. So don't worry about the weakness part. Just know that you're doing something very different than you did in the past. And your body's going to get used to that if you train in that all the time, which is also why we suggest maybe training in a couple different things just for like that adaptability. But what I'm hearing, it sounds like you may be having trouble either A, with the plate and the stiffness because the peg turbo didn't have a plate, whereas the pro and speed certainly do. And potentially the four-foot rocker, right? Because, again, that is how that angles is going to be different to each person if it's not hitting you the right way. And if we know from the research, if it does not line up with your first toe joint, with the metatarsal phalangeal joints, that that can actually increase that stress and make it even more stiff as opposed to doing what they say it's going to do, which is help roll you forwards. So I'm almost wondering, my brain went to, hey, can I find you a couple of non-plated shoes that still have that nice foam that maybe aren't, you know, as stiff? So the two shoes that came to mind was one of them was the Topo Spectre, which is still a little higher stack, still has a little bit of that special P-Bax foam in the midsole without being a true super shoe. And it does have some flexibility in the forefoot with a fairly nice smooth rocker off the front. The other shoe that I kind of thought of that was still kind of in that, I mean, they're both in that lightweight eight-ish ounce range, was also the Asics Evo Ride Speed, which I really enjoyed. It didn't get a lot of press. And uh, when I posted a uh, video review, there's a lot of views because there weren't any other reviews of it. Um, but that's another one where, again, it's not necessarily a super foam. It's got some flexibility, but it really reminded me of the Peg Turbo for its versatility. Nice bouncy foam underfoot not plated, just a teeny bit snug, a little like that kind of half trainer, half performance shoe. But the Asics Evil Ride Speed is something I would check out just because I think that rocker and the flexibility is going to bounce out a little bit better than um, maybe what the Endorphin Speed and Pro uh, Endorphin uh, Pro are doing just because of the combination of the plate and where the rocker is, which again, is going to work really well for some people. It works really well for me. It's obviously not, may not be working well for you, but I'd say, don't worry about the weakness part. Just go, Hey, you're, you're at, you're putting your feet in a very different shoe type and your body is getting used to that type. And it's not that you're getting weak. If you're training and doing everything, it's just that you're having to do something different. And if you do something different all the time and aren't used to that old thing, that old thing's going to become more difficult. So yeah, Maybe a couple options might not be a bad idea. Yeah. The the other shoe, so this is coming from someone who's never ran in the Peg Turbo or the Peg Turbo 2, but from you just describing Nike's shoe with their kind of like P-Bax foam, their trainer that they do that now with is the Invincible 3. Hard for me to fully recommend that shoe because the fit, honestly, is just bad in the heel. Like it does not hold the heel for me at all. And I know our other testers had similar experience. If they dialed that in, I would, that might be my trainer of the year, but it does have that, you know, a good amount of cushion under your underfoot. It's it's big. It's high stacked. It's got a wider base too. Um, it's got a little bit of a rocker, but it still is slightly flexible. And so, I know you kind of mentioned that ground feel. And I found that even though that shoe is really high, I felt connected to the ground um, <clears throat> on the runs that I did with it. And I did I did everything from I did like some of my fastest workouts when I was training for my. Um, 
not, not my fastest, but uh, my longest like threshold work I did in the Invincible when I was training for my 20K. Um, I did multiple, like it was like two miles on, one mile off repeats at like 10K pace for me. And it did great. And I was like over, you know, 10, a 10 mile workout and stuff. So uh, not that it's anything similar, uh, but it does have the PBAX foam in the trainer without a plate, a little bit of a rocker, but not as much, a little bit of flexibility and feel kind of grounded but the heels just needs to be refined so hopefully the four just fixes that and then that might be my trainer of the year next year um if they can fix the fit that's that's the issue for me um all right we are on to our final question this is from ks runs and they're asking what discontinued shoe line or lines would you like to see brought back with contemporary technology what pops into your head matt so there was two. Th- there is one big one, just because I've been thinking about this with the Brooks Ghost Max, and then I gotta give Nathan credit for the other one that I was that was kind of in the back of my mind. So the first first thing, and this might be a little controversial, I would love see, to see the Brooks Pure Line come back. I love the pure cadence, the pure flow. The Brooks Ghost Max kind of reminds me of a higher sack height pure flow. This is not not quite as flexible. Um, that I, and I really enjoyed that shoe. I know some of the, uh, the pure drift and I'm forgetting the, the other one that actually worked really well for a lot of people is a racing flat, um, are kind of, some people like those shoes. Some people hated them. And, uh, one of those might be on the Brooks wall of shame that they have, uh, in their, uh, development <laughs> departments. Maybe I wasn't supposed to say that. Um, but I really enjoyed that. The other two that I would really love to see in current day is the, oh, before you go, yeah. before you go to the next one, I got to ask you, do yeah. you think that the, that pure line could be brought back with new tech that Brooks currently has? Like, do they have, this is, do they have new tech? contemporary tech or are they not quite there what's your take on that like could they bring back the pure line with what they currently have materials wise or do they need would you want something different are you gonna get mad at me for this doesn't matter all right i'm gonna say (laughs) that no i don't think they have enough new technology for that to really be updated and maybe i just want it i don't know that's a good question so maybe not yeah because I think about what That's they have. True. They have yeah. They have shoes that that landed super well for some of our team members, yeah. right? They have like the the Hyperion Max. Yeah. Like that's one of Andrea's best shoes this year. She's put in like 400 miles on a couple pairs of that of that shoe, right? So she's like it's not that they don't have shoes that work, but their foam options are what's in the Hyperion Max, what they put in the Hyperion kind of line stuff. Um, and then they have you know, the DNA loft and it's just is that enough? And it, I I would say it feels different than what other companies have in their arsenal like it doesn't feel as responsive or as bouncy Um, even even the max which is a nice shoe i i didn't dislike running it but it doesn't feel like it has a lot of pop to it so i I think it's a fair question and i think that they would probably self-analyze that too if they're it's not like brooks doesn't sell well like they're doing fantastic um but they just don't have you know super high performing yeah foams right now and they could come and show us their numbers and maybe we'd be wrong right but from a feel standpoint it doesn't feel that way the ghost max i guess that's it's a huge change though the ghost max feels like a a contemporary daily trainer um and feels good yeah no sorry what's what's, no it's it's fine no it's it's, it is true i think that things brooks does a lot of things well there they do consistency really well which works for a lot of people but some of the things their performance stuff in terms of using experiment with new foams things like that it's a little it we need a little bit more 
we'll have to see I, we're, the in the uh what's it called hyperion elite 4 uh isn't available yet but it's now on their website and i don't think they're using a fo- new foam either but we'll have to see but i do think yeah i do agree with you that maybe all right fine they have enough shoes on they have enough of their line that maybe that's fine so i'll just pretend that the pure flow would be and pure cadence would be great again but um yeah so they yeah okay so moving on I, this one i think is well worth it so from mizuno the sayonara which some people might argue it does have a newer ver- i don't know why i'm forgetting their newer um it's not their super shoe but it's a plated lightweight trainer rebellion the rebellion somebody might argue Flash, that yeah. but i don't it's not quite the same because the sayonara even though it had some stiffness still had that such the really smooth and flexible forefoot whereas the rebellion is not flexible stiff. at all it is too stiff actually yeah. for me to handle but the other thing i would love to see is to see a new because mizuno has done a phenomenal job they've really like the rebellion pro like that shoe is nuts um and they really did something different and aggressive which is really fun i would love them to see the contemporary stuff that they have now and take the mizuno wave universe series and bring that into today's market because that was the other than the the rc 5000 from new balance that was the lightest racing flat on the market for the longest time the mizuno wave universe 5 i think actually beat the rc 500 i might be wrong on that in terms of how light it got and the mizuno wave universe 5 is what i set my 1445 uh, road 5k pr in so it has a special place in my heart i would love to see a current day version of that as more companies like hoko with the celia road or nike the streak fly is yeah i guess streak fly in there um and then Saucony with the sinister to see mizuno come and be like let us show you how to do a truly super lightweight shoe with the super foam that's that's the one i would like to see uh come back but we'll have to see if that's they fun. respond to that what about you you know, it's funny. I have, because I didn't start running till college, I haven't really lived through the extinction of lines that I loved. Um, <clears throat> so I, I don't really have have an answer to the question. I would say the only shoe that came to mind was um, my first running shoe was a, a, the New Balance um, 890. Um, and it was oh. like called the Battle And so they've kind of discontinued that a bit. I think it fell off maybe like three or four years ago. Yep. But I just like it, it. And I didn't have any I didn't have any conception of like what the shoes were on the market. Right. Like I just went to a shoe store, tried it on. I like this one and I got it. So I don't know if I'd actually want it back. But that's the one I'm like, I don't think it exists anymore. It'd be fun to have that kind of it was a lightweight trainer. That's what it was. I, um, but I, I got to yeah. add one. I got to add one. Okay. So the New Balance 904 and 905, I'll be very impressed if anybody knows that, was a mild stability lightweight trainer. And the reason I'm say- saying this is because those shoes have kind of disappeared. Uh, actually, Saucony Type A9? What about that? Uh, or like, fast or, no, or like So I would like to see the Saucony Fast about. Switch Sorry. and the DS Trainer come back with New Age technology because all the mild stability lightweight trainers are basically dead outside of the hyperion gts and the launch gts so yeah you stimulated you consider tempest in that realm or no not quite i too can heavy. see that too not necessarily too it's more of that it's more of a trainer right it's meant to yeah, it like yep. it's got a super foam it's got the stability but it's more like that combination of the new age hurricane being lighter but those like light light stability shoes like we got to come back like the fast switch is a great one um from Saucony. um yeah some of those would be really yeah. really fun to see with newer tech 
Yeah. And, you know, all the conversations about these, you know, I think our conversation about Brooks, about do they have the technology to, like, give contemporary feel to their older lines? And I think what we've learned over this past year, a great case study is ASICs, right? I think there was a number of years where people were like, man, ASICs really fell behind. They they aren't with it anymore. They don't whatever. But behind the scenes, they had been working on stuff to relaunch really well. And now they're one of, I would say, the leaders in terms of your options for performance shoes and and their daily training line is just really, I think they're just robust from top to bottom. So, you know, what what the what a company looks like now could be totally different, yep. you know, in three, five years from now. I know we know Bro- we've met Brooks, uh, like development team. We've met their people in their science department they're all really great people, smart people. They know what they're doing. So who knows what they're going to do, but you know, just a a snapshot of now from a performance side doesn't say what they're going to be in three years from now. You can all redefine yourselves as you, as you go about Hoka, even the same way. Not that again, Hoka does well um, in sales, but I think that they're until they came out with this um, Rocket X2, they would have been lacking in the performance shoe realm. They had the, the carbon X, but it, it didn't have a super foam and it, I don't know. So I think that there's, there's always room for these companies to strive and push. And I, I think they're all have a really good pulse on where they're at and what their goals are. So if they don't go that direction, that's just not what they want to do. And that's, that's their decision, what they get to do. So, I, all right. I, I will also say Brooks is working on some very cool stuff. I wouldn't say necessarily, I don't know about their performance line, but in terms of where they're going with making shoes that adapt really well to different people, Looking at some stuff um, with Dash Alex, so those of you that, that um, doing some really cool stuff on metrics and seeing how they can make better footwear for better people, kind of focusing. Hopefully, this doesn't come off the wrong way on on the average run of the classic run of the majority of people are going to be using their daily trainers. They are doing a lot of work in that realm. So while they might not be the most performance oriented company, they are certainly still doing well from a you know, hey, this is a classic daily training shoe that's going to work well for the majority of people. And how do we make this continue to refine this to work better for the majority of runners? So they are doing that. There's just only so many things you can work on at once. Right. So we got the Brooks Pure line, the Cyanar and Universe series. We got all these lightweight stability, yep. you know, racing-ish kind of shoes. The What do you say? The 905, 906? Yeah, 90, the 905 the, from New Balance, or 904, 905, the Fast 904, Switch, 905. and then the DS Fast Trainer. Switch. Mostly, I'm really upset, and so are many people that have emailed me going, oh my gosh, A6 killed the DS Trainer. I'm stocking up. What do I do now? Uh, we'd love to see that. Some yeah. of us still <laughs> love that show. That's great. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us for this mailbag episode. We didn't even get through the list that we thought we could get through today. So we will continue to address your questions. But if you have more, please post them below or email us at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com. Almost didn't remember our email, doctorsofrunning at gmail.com. And as always, you can follow us on all the social platforms. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Woo! Well, we made it.